Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, my name is Dr. Mark Trollis, and welcome to Fertility Health Podcast. I'm a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in Orlando, Florida, and this podcast is all about empowering you with the latest information on reproductive medicine so that you can be proactive in your journey toward uh, having a child. This podcast involves bringing on specialists, thought-provoking leaders in our field to uh, address the latest information and have a, uh, a discussion that will allow you all uh, to benefit in all aspects of particular topics. So today's topic is going to be on advances in male infertility. And with me today is a dear friend, uh, Dr. Zamit Patel. Uh, Dr. Patel is board certified in urology and one of the few urologists in Florida that is fellowship trained in andrology, which is male infertility. Dr. Patel uh, completed his residency at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York and then a fellowship in andrology at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He's associate professor at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine as well as the medical director of Cryos International, which is the largest sperm bank in the world. He is chief of staff at Florida Hospital, East Orlando, and he practices in Orlando. Welcome to the podcast, Amit. Very, very happy to be here, Mark. Um, thank you so much. And some, uh, throughout uh, my career, I've seen a lot of emphasis on the female, but to this day, after doing this for about 20 years, it seems as though there is not enough emphasis on the male <clears throat> And when I when I see patients coming to me and the male factor, I, I look at this and they and they basically either go right to IUI or IVF, and they're still not universally getting a male evaluation. <clears throat> How are you seeing uh, uh, referrals for strictly infertility? Are, are you seeing that increasing now, or you still see that it it, it fluctuates based on the actual uh, fertility position. So I, I think that it, it's actually we're in a very interesting time, I think, within the population, within the U.S., but also the world. When we start to look at declining fertility rates, obviously all of us are getting, are, are busy and we'll get more busy. And as that happens, I think that there's going to be more awareness. But what you're saying is exactly right. There seems to be more aware, awareness on the female side but like everything else, the male has lagged behind. So we're starting to see much more of the male patients come in and do it of their own volition and think that, well, it could be me. But it's still primarily female-driven and still primarily, therefore, female reproductive endocrinologist-driven. Yeah, I, I agree. And what would you say, you know, we know the basic evaluation, and, we, and we're talking about that on another show, and we're talking about the uh, standard <clears throat> artificial insemination or intrauterine insemination, IUI, what would you say <clears throat> is the cutoff 
with a with experim analysis that uh, after your evaluation and testing, if we cannot get uh, these parameters above a certain level, when would you when would you feel that ART uh, in vitro fertilization uh, assisted reproduction? When is that appropriate next step? So I, I think that on, on a general level, we, we talk about this in a kind of a grayscale. So in terms of man, a man's fertility, a total modal count or the total amount of wiggling sperm, it's really kind of the best predictor we have of a man's fertility potential. And to give you an idea of range, above 13 million is kind of within the normal range. Above 20 million is a little more solidly in the normal range. Above 50 million is average. So if we're having difficulty with pregnancy below 50 million, we'd say, well, we maybe should take a look. Below 13 million, we'd say, look, we should really consider some form of assisted reproduction if they've been trying for a while. Mm-hmm. All right. So let let and and so you know, ICSI is used um, uh, increasingly in our specialty. ICSI, for our listeners, is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And that's where you take a single sperm and inject it into the egg for the severe male factor patients to allow for really equivalent results of fertilization uh, and embryo development and pregnancy rates. So let's go to meet to the to, right to the uh, patient with severe low sperm uh, uh, concentration, uh, as well as azoospermia, which is no sperm. Uh, how do you approach these men, and, and what options are there? So basically, if we see very low or no sperm counts, really it's one of, due to one of four things. It's due to either genetic things, environmental things, anatomic things, or hormonal things. And usually it's a combination of one of those things. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. So really we go through each one of those factors to see what it is that may be causing it, which one of those things are reversible or at least modifiable, and then based on that kind of optimize the patient so that if they're able to give sperm by themselves for a seed, that's perfect. If not, sometimes we have to do something surgical to get sperm. So so let's say that, that... um, you, you have a patient uh, with, as I said, severe low numbers and no sperm in the ejaculate. When would you consider uh, hormonal therapy to try to recover sperm uh, before going to ART? Uh, and when would you say that this is something that we really have to go to the testes uh, to be able to get sperm to do IVF? That's, that's a great question. So. Usually, we do some sort of hormonal manipulation almost always, and the reason why is because the concentration of testosterone in the testes is about 40 to 100 times that in blood. It's really, really concentrated in the testes, and the reason why is in order for sperm to grow and divide, it's essential that they be based in really high levels of testosterone. So we like to kind of prime the pump before we actually do anything surgical to get sperm from the testes. Now, ultimately, if we don't see a total count of above a million or so, then usually we go into the testes with some form of surgical procedure to get sperm. So I just want to underscore that for our listeners. Uh, For a while, we really felt that if any uh, sperm was in the ejaculate, we would try to use that. And and what we started seeing, and I think uh, uh, Bob Oates in in Boston was one of the first ones to uh, to show the the better outcomes of fertilization, even if there's sperm in the ejaculate, but we're talking about now 0.5 to 1 million uh, per milliliter in the ejaculate, 
that we're seeing better results with testicular sperm retrieval uh, as opposed to using the ejaculate. That's exactly right. Very well said. Yeah. So when we go to sperm retrieval, and I know this is something that uh, when, when it just came out in the late 90s, we were very obsessed about making sure that we did not, that we always use fresh uh, testicular sperm and try to time it between the man and the woman. And then, unfortunately, the couple of both have undergone a procedure, and you're worried about who's going to drive them home uh, because they had both gone through this. And so then we started seeing that of the, of the, of the types of men with azospermia or no sperm, there's really two types. There's the obstructed type, which means there's a blockage, and then the non-obstructed, which means that really the ducts are wide open and there's just very, very poor sperm production from the testes. So we saw that, that the blocked uh, uh, men uh, with azospermia, the blocked azospermia or obstructive, did better if we were able to freeze that sperm in advance because they had a lot of sperm. But, but I still am, am, would like to get your opinion about the men who have non-obstructive because we're not going to get a lot of sperm from the testes. Do you think it's just as effective to use fresh uh, 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 I'm sorry, frozen sperm versus fresh when you retrieve the men with non-obstructive? So this is an area of quite a bit of controversy and uh, within our, our field. Some people would say that it doesn't really matter, and certainly the, the, um, the data that we have would suggest that the fresh and frozen samples tend to do about the same. Now, the biggest issue with freezing sperm is that when you freeze it in thawed, you lose some sperm. So sometimes it's very difficult to get sperm that's frozen and then thawed. And we've tried a couple of different methods to actually try to keep that sperm in an area where we can find it when we freeze and thaw it. So ultimately what it comes down to is the familiarity with the reproductive center of actually using that sperm. A center like yours who does a lot of cycles and the embryologists are very good and they're very familiar with using sperm probably doesn't make a difference. With some centers that maybe aren't as familiar with using sperm, aren't as familiar with freezing and thawing sperm for IVF, it may make a difference for them. So it, it really kind of depends a lot on what kind of center you go to and the familiarity they have with using testicular sperm. Yeah, excellent, excellent points. Um, what what I um, think about when when you have the men with um, uh, with with no sperm, uh, is there a, a cutoff that? or rather is an evaluation in the sense of, of blood work. Uh, and what I'm getting at are the, are the, uh, are the test is a Y-chromosome microdeletion. Could you just uh, educate our, our readers, uh, our listeners a little bit more in terms of um, when, what these results would mean, the azospermic factors, you know, the A, B, and C, what they mean to you and how that will influence whether you want to go ahead to do a sperm retrieval? So, yeah. So the so – the, why – microdeletions that you're referring to are those genetic factors that can be responsible for azospermia. And there are lots and lots of genetic factors, but one of the most one of the most reliable ones is a Y chromosome microdeletion. Now, when it comes to genetics, we're not very reliable. When we talk about Y chromosome microdeletion in total, it only makes up maybe about four percent, four to five percent at most of the patients we see with azospermia. 
But having said that, that's still a lot because all the rest of them are probably small, little defects that only make up 1% to 2% of the population at most. So when we see a defect, when we were training, there was this A for awful, B for bad, and C for cool sort of uh, mnemonic for the different regions of the Y chromosome. In other words, if you have an AZF-C deletion, chances are you're still going to find sperm. On a B deletion, probably not. It depends on where in the B deletion. If it's very, very far down in the B, what's known as the exon, or pretty far down on the chromosome, you still might. Um, farther up, you may not. And A, there's never been a reported uh, case of doing an a, having an AZFA deletion and finding sperm. Right. And, and, and it really underscores the point of a thorough evaluation before these men uh, undertake a testicular sperm retrieval, doesn't it? That's absolutely right, and that you really kind of need to do each one of those things, kind of a thorough anatomic, environmental, genetic, and hormonal evaluation before you start to put things together to figure out what's going on. Now, I know that, you, that, that we also do karyotypes on these men, and, and sometimes we'll actually see the client the cells, the XX, uh, 47XXY. W what are you seeing in those men? Are you Are you taking them on to do a sperm retrieval? Yeah, so the key with, with Kleinfelters is a matter of time. The, the, the younger the patient is, the more likely you're going to get sperm. And generally speaking, past the age of 25, it becomes very difficult. Past the age of 30, it becomes extremely difficult to get sperm. Uh, so we, our, our big focus with Kleinfelters is actually with the pediatricians to try to get them in early to be able to get sperm with them. And in fact, when we do them on 16, 17, 18-year-olds, most of the times we actually do get sperm. Oh, really interesting. Really interesting. Wow. Well, you know, I can keep on talking about IVF uh, all, all day with you because you you have such a plethora of knowledge, but I wanted to give the listeners uh, other areas of advances that, that you all are doing now. So if you, if you have a man um, who, who you are diagnosed uh, with an obstruction, you know, you do your vasogram uh, and you see that there's actually occlusion in the duct. What what patient are, are, would you offer surgery to uh, versus consideration of IVF? That's a great question. Normally, what we do is on all those patients, we get testicular sperm because that's kind of their insurance policy. At the very least, they'll be able to do IVF. Now, it really kind of depends on where their obstruction is. So if their obstruction is in, is in an area that we can reliably get sperm, that we can reliably traverse, rather, then we like to reconstruct. But a lot of times these men just don't have anything you can plug into. They just simply don't have enough of a bridge to, 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 kind of, to make everything work. And so in those patients, unfortunately, we have to rely on IVF. Um, but there is a subpopulation of patients that we're actually able to reconstruct, and depending on the amount of defects and, the, and specifically the epididymis itself, how the sperm comes out of the testes, that really becomes crucial in your ability to reconstruct these patients. What kind of pregnancy rates would you, would you quote? And obviously that's uh, a, a very much contingent on the age of the woman. Uh, but what, what are you seeing, uh, the success rates in, in doing these types of surgeries? And so, for example, if it's, a, if it's from a vasectomy and we do a vasectomy reversal, 
Um, and we're able to just put the tubes together. In other words, we don't have to put the vast to the epididymis. We're able to put the vast together. Our pregnancy rates are very good, assuming female factor, like you said. That, that, that's really the most important thing. If you, usually if I see a patient that's had a vasectomy and the female partner is above 35, I usually tell them that, look, you know, we can do this and we can get sperm but it may not be the best option for you because you might be better off just doing IVF, um, regardless of how much sperm we get in the past. But assuming that the wife is young and the partner hasn't had the uh, vasectomy within 13 years, then our pregnancy rates are actually very good. That's, they're right around 40 50%. Now, um, I remember, I'm sorry. I, I remember that uh, that vasectomies were, were thought of as um, – uh, uh, not an option if it was more than 10 years uh, from the prior. That number was always being brought up. But, yeah. uh, but uh, and it still actually is when I, when I hear consultations about that. Um, it seems as though uh, that it's the female fa factor that's going to make the decision about whether uh, you would go after that vasectomy reversal. Uh, is, that, is that correct? That's absolutely right. And, and the other part about it is, too, remember, male sperm counts do decline with age. So one of the things I always do with my vasectomy uh, patients that want a reversal is kind of do that testosterone level. In other words, kind of get a window into what's going on in the testes. Because ultimately, that, that the production in the testes, if it's not good, then there's no point in doing a vasectomy reversal. Yeah, yeah, uh, excellent, excellent point. Um, very quick in the, in the, in the remaining uh, minutes that we have, uh, when you do a testicular sperm retrieval and you don't retrieve sperm from one testes and then uh, you go to the other and, and you may be able to get some that the embryologist confirms, how long are you waiting if, if unfortunately the couple do not, does not conceive and they do want to try again? Uh, for our listeners, when would that man try again to do a testicular sperm retrieval if, if they wanted to? So I, usually we wait three months. Um, now, during that three months, we usually try to do other things to help the testy along, kind of to help it do better than it had before. Um, and there are various medications that we can do for that. But generally speaking, we don't like to come in, go into testes shorter than three-month three, three periods. And, and the reason for that is because, you know, basically whenever you do anything within the testes, any kind of surgery, in fact, any kind of surgery that involve, that doesn't involve the testes, sperm counts will drop. Now, ultimately, they do come back, but they'll initially drop. Hmm. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Okay. Very, very good. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about when you're talking about the sectomies and reversals, wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a way that all the urologists that do vasectomy reversals would just take a little bit of sperm uh, from uh, the epididymis uh, prior to the reversal uh, so that if the reversal fails or they don't conceive, the man doesn't have to go through a testicular sperm retrieval after that. He at least has some sperm. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it's something that we talk about with all our patients as an insurance policy to you know, say exactly that, that, look, you know, this way you don't, no matter what, you don't have to go through anything again. Uh, unfortunately, it, you know, part of it is patient-driven that, you know, they some patients just don't think it's, you know, needed, which, you know, it, it, unfortunately you can't, even if it's a good percentage, it's never 100%. Um, 
yeah. and you're right. And, and sometimes there's certain uh, urologists that, you know, when they do have a section reversal, they don't offer. Right, right. Well, Zamit, this was just so uh, educational for me and, and I'm sure the listeners. And, and I want to thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. And I know how busy you are because I try to get patients to you and, and uh, they, you're always squeezing them in for us. And I thank you for that. Uh, everyone, uh, uh, let me thank Dr. Patel. He's a board certified urologist and fellowship trained in, in, in andrology. Uh, once again, he's chief of staff at Florida Hospital. Uh, East Orlando, he practices here, and uh, we are very, very happy to have him. He, he takes care of patients, uh, all, many of our patients, and uh, uh, he's an excellent physician. So uh, thank you, Samit, and everyone, until next time, uh, this is uh, Dr. Mark Trollis, uh for our Philly Health Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, Check out the IBFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.